Chapter 8 of The Day's Journey. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Helen Melora. The Day's Journey by Netta Surrett. Chapter 8. A week later, Kingslake was sitting in his study before a table littered with papers doing nothing. It was nearly twelve o'clock. At half-past one, Philippa Burton was coming to lunch. He had not seen her now for eight days, a period which, he impatiently admitted to himself, had seemed more like eight weeks, and the morning had appeared interminable. She was to have gone to the rooms his wife had taken for her in the village, the day after Maine's arrival, but she had written to Cecily that a piece of work, a commission, must keep her longer in town. He thought of her incessantly, and confusedly. She was the most wonderful woman he had ever met, the cleverest, the most elusive, the purest-minded. That was so touching, so adorable in Philippa, and yet at unguarded moments he wondered if it could be cured. Philippa as a friend, an inspirer, a twin soul. How exquisite she had been, would be. But Philippa as a mistress? The thought would obtrude. He took it from its depth and caressed it at furtive moments, thinking with rapture of her eyes, her mysterious hair, then thrust it hastily back, piling lilies of thought above its hiding place. It would have surprised him to know that he was thinking at second hand, but Robert seldom dug to the depths. It was characteristic of him that he never saw the roots of his own motives and actions. It was merely their interlacing leaves and flowers to which he directed his attention. A voice outside in the garden broke in upon his musings his wife's voice, followed by a man's laugh. He got up and glanced under the sun-blind which shielded the window. Cecily was picking flowers for the lunch-table, and Maine, seated on a bench before a rustic table, was tying flies for fishing. For a moment Robert experienced a curious, uneasy sensation. It was almost like shame, and he dismissed it with a decided recognition of its idiocy. Maine had settled down very well, it was a splendid thing for Cecily to have someone fresh to talk to. It was pitiful to think how selfish most men were to their wives. How jealous. It was only ten minutes past twelve. The morning seemed endless, and he was unable to do a stroke of work. It was dreadful to have days like that. Somewhere in the distance he heard Diana calling. Coming, answered Cecily in response, and presently he saw her moving towards the house. Maine continued to occupy himself with his fishing tackle, as during his restless pacing to and fro in his study, Kingslake could see. Presently he opened the French window and stepped out onto the grass. Maine looked up from his work. The bench on which he was sitting was flanked by a wall of yew, which was made part from a formal enclosure framed on three sides by yew hedges, and open on the fourth to the rest of the garden only by a narrow archway cut out of the living green. It was a charming, sheltered little spot where Cecily's white lilies flourished, a sort of dedication, she said, to the larger garden outside. Helloa, observed Maine as Kingslake came nearer. Knocked off for the day. Is the muse coy? Yes, returned Robert rather irritably. I'm not getting on. Change of place, I suppose. Anything like that affects me. He took out his cigarette case. Delicate machinery you writing people must have. Something's always going wrong with the works, isn't it? Oh, more or less, 
Robert returned, passing his hand through his hair with a gesture habitual to him. You've been working in town lately, haven't you? Yes, getting up stuff for this book. But that's finished. Now there's only the writing. Good Lord, ejaculated Maine with a groan. Only the writing. The mere thought of it makes me gasp. Robert smiled. I can't tie flies, he said, jerking his head in the direction of Maine's litter of silk and tinsel. No, but you land your fish with the best of us. That last book of yours caught on, didn't it? Oh, it brought me in something, I'm glad to say. Maine leaned back against the yew hedge, stretching out his long legs contentedly. He tilted up his face towards the serene blue sky, then glanced around him, his look taking in the flowers, the dancing butterflies above them, the delicate shadows on the grass. What do you want money for in Arcadia? he asked. To get out of it, returned Robert with a sort of impatient bitterness. Maine glanced sharply at him as he half turned away to light the cigarette he held. You are really going to town in the autumn. But I thought you were so keen on all this. He waved his hand comprehensively. Oh, my dear fellow, exclaimed Kingslake irritably. It's all right, but one can't live on lilies and roses, you know. He broke off abruptly. Listen, was that the bell? I don't think so, returned Dick composedly. Why, expecting anyone? Oh, no, no. There was quite an elaborate unconcern in his tone. That is, a friend of Cecily's, a Miss Burton, is coming to lunch, I believe. Maine had resumed his work. For the fraction of a second his deft fingers stopped in their movement. Robert was walking backwards and forwards across the little strip of turf in front of the seat. When he spoke again, it was abruptly. You don't think Cecily's looking well, do you? Not well at all, returned Maine quietly. No, no, said her husband the second negation indicating that he was giving the matter his full attention. I don't think she is. She took the baby's death to heart. He threw a quick glance at his companion. She, she wants rousing. I think you'll do her a lot of good, Maine. I'm glad you're able to stay a little while. It's what she wants, an interest for her, an old friend and that sort of thing. You must come and look us up when we're in town. Thanks, returned Maine laconically. There was a pause. Robert took out his handkerchief and wiped his forehead. Doesn't get any cooler, does it? He remarked. I'm glad on your wife's account that you're going to live in town, Maine said presently. Robert looked, as he felt, genuinely surprised. For Cecily? Why? Don't you think she's rather thrown away here? The quietness of his tone irritated Robert. He reminded himself that he had never really liked Maine. He was rather an unfriendly brute. Thrown away, he repeated. Oh, I don't know. Why? A woman has her house and the neighbors, and she's very fond of the garden and that sort of thing. That sort of thing used to not be very much in her line. Oh, yes, I know, exclaimed Kinslake impatiently as he balanced himself on the arm of the bench. All girls, especially the rather spoiled sort of girl that Cecily was, get ideas into their heads. But, my dear fellow, a woman nearly always settles down after she's married. Some of your most striking novels are founded on a contrary opinion, observed Maine with a laugh. You see, you are read, even in the wilds. You flatter me, said Robert dryly. He moved again and began his restless pacing. Cecily, I suppose, has been complaining, 
telling you that it was my wish to come into the country and so forth? He broke out at last with some resentment. Maine lifted his head. She has never mentioned the subject to me, he answered shortly. I was only thinking of her as I knew her five or six years ago. She was considered, well, rather brilliant in those days. Does she write now? The question was put suddenly. Not that I know of, Kingslake answered absently. Maine glanced at him with a curious expression. He wondered whether he was aware of the illuminating quality of his indifferent reply. Did he know what a milestone he had pointed out in the matrimonial road? Women don't really care a snap of the fingers about art, Robert went on with confidential fluency. Matrimony is the goal of their ambition. That once attained, they sit ever afterwards serenely on the shore, watching the struggles of the rest of their sex towards the same haven. A magazine was lying on the bench, one of the quarterlies. Maine fluttered the leaves with a smile. Mrs. Kingslake left this here, he said. I envy your power of detachment when you write articles, Kingslake. A Vindication of Women's Claim in Art by Fergus MacDonald. That's your writing name, isn't it? I seem to be turning your own weapons against you with horrid frequency. I'm sorry, he laughed again. You misunderstand me, protested Robert. Didn't I say the women who marry? I meant to. What I said doesn't apply to the women nowadays who don't marry. I have no wish to marry. That such women may be artists, actual or potential, I have no doubt. When a woman is not preoccupied with the affairs of sex, she's generally wanting to be. Kingslake stopped short in his harangue and looked at the other man doubtfully. You take a cynical view, he said. No, merely a natural one. You don't believe that some women deliberately put love out of their lives? asked Robert tentatively. My dear chap, love never gives some women a chance to be so rude. I don't mean that. I mean the sort of woman that has a chance. She'd take it. Kingslake regarded him with a curious expression for a moment. There was a look of dawning hope in his face, a half-smile of pleased expectancy. Then it faded, and he resumed his former slightly sententious manner. My dear Maine, he replied, you've been out in the wilds for some years. You can't be expected to know the spirit of the times. You don't understand the modern woman. My dear Kingslake, returned Maine with great deliberation. If I'd been out in the wilds, as you say, for fifty instead of five years, I should still disbelieve in her existence. There's no such thing as a modern woman. She's exactly as old as Eve. She doesn't shake her curls nowadays, nor have hysterics. She writes for the Daily Mail and plays hockey. But do you seriously think these trifling differences affect the eternal feminine? Not a bit of it. Robert looked at his watch. I say, I have stopped, surely. It must be more than half-past twelve. What do you make it? Dick slowly drew out his watch. Five and twenty past. Kingslake threw away his half-smoked cigarette and began to light another one. Maine watched him. Do you know this lady who is coming to lunch? He asked carelessly. The match burned Kingslake's fingers as he raised his head and uttered a hasty observation. I met her the other day in town, he added, as a pendant. Is she a modern woman? asked Maine. The casualness of his tone reassured Robert. Yes, he returned emphatically. At least I should imagine so. She's an artist, has a studio of her own and so forth. She's had a hard time of it, poor girl. 
He looked meditatively at the glowing end of his cigarette. There's a woman now, he broke out, who has an absolute, a perfectly disinterested love of art for its own sake. She's a case in point. Did she tell you so? Yes, returned Robert unguardedly, warming to his subject. She doesn't think of love. She doesn't want it. She looks upon it as unnecessary, a hindrance, a barrier to her intellectual life. Rather a communicative young lady, eh? was Maine's comment. Robert flushed. Oh, in the course of conversation, he began hurriedly. He was cut short by Diana, who emerged from the porch with a tray of cut flowers. I'm going to do them out here, she began. It's too boiling for anything in the house. Robert! As her eyes fell upon him. Why are you idling here? Out for five minutes' play, I suppose. That's right. Get back to your work like a good little fellow, and see what an industrious boy you can be. It's not nearly lunchtime yet. Robert smiled indulgently. Quite right. I'm frightfully slack today somehow, he said, as he turned towards the study. This beastly heat, I suppose. Diana gave a mischievous chuckle as he disappeared. I do love to watch the celebrity at home she said in a low voice, choked with laughter. Robert's not done a stroke of work this morning. He's been looking out of the window with a yearning gaze like this. She made one of her inimitable faces. Maine grinned. As a sister-in-law, Diana, you are a treasure. There's the bell, exclaimed the girl. That means the history book, I expect. I wonder whether Cecily is ready. I hope she's putting on her blue muslin. I told her to. Come along, we must go and see her, I suppose. Within, Cecily was going forward to meet her guest. The women exchanged a swift glance of mutual interest, while Philippa impulsively put out both hands. Cecily took one of them, and ignored the inclination of Philippa's face towards hers. How do you do? I hope you're not very tired, she began. Cecily, cried Philippa rapturously, after all these years. Yes, but they had to pass, did they not? returned her hostess in a matter-of-fact tone. I'm so sorry you've been ill, but you are better, surely. If you hate looking ill as much as I do, I'm sure you'll like to be told that it doesn't show. Philippa smiled, a little sadly. Oh, it's nothing. I'm not very robust, that's all, she returned patiently. Is this Diana? The baby Diana I used to hear about when we were schoolgirls? Diana, who had entered the hall with Maine, shook hands with the brusqueness which characterizes the young girl when she is at the same time shy and aggressive. Affected fool, was her brief mental verdict, as she glared at Philippa's artless, unfashionable hat and brown sandal. Mr. Maine, Miss Burton, murmured Cecily. We have met before at Lady Wilmot's, haven't we? smiled Philippa as they shook hands. The door opened at the moment to admit Robert. "'Ah, I thought I heard voices,' he exclaimed genially. "'How do you do, Miss Burton?' Diana giggled as she retired with Maine to the window seat. "'Robert's up and down like a dog in a fair,' she whispered irreverently. "'He'll get on splendidly with a history book. "'What an idiot she looks like in that two-penny tube dress, doesn't she? "'And then you and I and Sis can play about and amuse ourselves and have a lovely time. "'What are you staring at, Dick?' "'Don't.' She'll think you're admiring her, and she's just as conceited as a peacock already. End of chapter 8 Recording by Helen Melara.